Hey folks, welcome to the podcast this week. I've got uh, Charlie Crockett as a guest. Very interesting guy. This is a slightly longer interview than usual because this guy's story is, there's just a lot going on. He's still a young man and there's a lot going on. You'll, you'll hear about it. Can you hear my washing machine going in the background? That is, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those environmentally friendly washing machines that doesn't get the clothes clean and is very noisy. But at least I'm not using a lot of water. Uh, Dorothy Carvello will be our guest in a couple weeks. She's written a book called Anything for a Hit. It is an amazing book about her uh, struggle as the first female A&R rep at Atlantic Records. Uh, she started as a secretary to Amit Erdogan, uh, who comes off as just a jerk, although she sort of has affection for him. Uh, all the way through the story. Uh, so that's coming up in a few weeks. Of course, the archives all always at wfmu.org slash Michael. We are in the midst of our fall fundraiser. Uh, I know... Uh, it seems I don't know. Does it seem like we're asking to give all the time? It's really just twice a year. Uh, but if you're so inclined, head over to wfmu.org slash Michael. Click on the banner up there, and uh, you can just give five, ten bucks. Give whatever you want. You can give five, ten bucks a, a week, a month, a year, uh, whatever. Seventy-five bucks, you can get a copy of Super Hits of the Seventies, uh, number five, the one that uh, has so many great covers made especially for us there's a another volume coming out in the spring uh, a brand new one it's going to be great i'm working on it now but uh, last chance to get the the fifth volume is is right now uh back to charlie crockett uh, just great music great stuff four albums to dig into if you uh want to start getting acquainted with them uh, here i am with charlie crockett i'd like to buy this next round of beer Boys pick your poison, don't nobody pass We're all brothers of a bottle and glass When God made man, I guess he made him sad None are all good and none are all bad Then he made money, they cheat and deceive now we're all slaves who think that we're free. Good morning, Charlie Crockett. How are you? Oh, good morning, my brother. I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me. We have really, really been enjoying these records. And one of the things is I was kind of preparing to interview. I was going through all your, you know, press and stuff on your website. And, you know, people who write about music are like, going through their thesaurus really having a hard time putting the right words because there's the the there's so much influence going on in what you do well i just you know i i played on the street for a long time and i picked up a lot of styles that way you know i was in new orleans i spent a lot of time around brass bands and sang with brass bands and um and those guys recycle everything from hip-hop and soul to you know, hundred year old uh, Dixie Jazz, and uh, you know, and then a few hours later, I might be playing further down the street on Royal next to jug bands, and they're all doing old time music and you know, country drinking songs, and uh, I have an affinity for for all that music. You know, I, I played on the street in New York City for a number of years in the subways and in the subway cars, and I just, you know, I grew up listening to hip hop and soul and r&b and then as i got older i really started getting into more traditional music and i just uh always tried to keep it all together you know and so on my my records are, are i guess a pretty good a, a pretty good painting of what i do you know as i jump all over the place yeah but well, i mean it's for it's hard sometimes to glue all that stuff together but uh you know your records do a great job of kind of like you said going from a honky talk song to a soul song to you know throwing in the gulf coast and and kind of instruments pop in you know trumpets or accordions or things really and but for some some reason it works so i give you congratulations for making it uh glue together because it's not easy so you grew up in san benito texas i looked at the map that's about as far south as you can be and still be in the United States. I mean, we're talking about just a couple miles from Mexico, right? Yeah, that's right. That's about a that's about a ten minute drive down the border from there. You know, I was, I was born in the same town as Freddie Fender, and uh, you know, we have some similarities in our story stories with the you know he went to New Orleans, was playing with the Neville brothers and stuff when he was young, and that really you know 
a lot of times I feel like Freddie Fender doesn't doesn't get enough credit, or he's or he's just not well, maybe not enough has gone into him looking at his effect on American music and the way that he kind of did this, you know, this Tejano blues sound and the way that he kind of, you know, he was doing, if you listen to his early records, he has this very kind of rockabilly sound, you know, that's like in Spanish, this crazy, amazing rockabilly sound, like from like 59 and early 60s and stuff. And then later on, he ends up having these kind of popular country hits with uh, Wasted Days and Wasted Nights and, uh, before the next teardrop falls and uh, stuff like that, you know, and, and, and he's one of those guys that he was just on television and a very popular figure. Uh, you know, I, I think I saw him as a, probably when I was three or four years old, I saw him in concerts and, you know, I used to see him on the Johnny Canales show and which was, a, which was a real popular South Texas program. And that's obviously a really, you know, it's like a 90% Latino community down there. So he was the king and still is. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a region that, you know, it, it, it's different, you know, it's not really, it's not Mexico. It's not really the United States. It has a unique culture there. And, you know, to be from there is, is to be marginalized, you know, really, because when you tell people you're from South Texas, they assume the bottom of Texas is Houston. (laughs) And it's quite a bit further South than that. (laughs) So tell me, I mean, who's your mom? What was she doing down there? She grew up down there? No, actually, my mama was born in uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, she ended up down in South Texas with my with my father, and uh, they were living down in, on South Padre Island there in an old RV park. And then uh, when I was born, I was born in San Benito, but then we lived outside of Los Fresnos, small town down there. Uh, at the time, she was uneducated. After I was born, my mama went got into uh journalism down there at the what would now be University of Texas at uh Brown it's Brownsville, UT Edinburgh or whatever, but she got her bachelor's in journalism down there and you know, we were real poor at the time and uh that their relationship didn't work out and uh my daddy was pouring concrete and he was a shrimper out there on the on the on the shrimp boats and uh that didn't work out, and we moved back up. We moved up to, uh, she had lived in Dallas, I guess, when she was younger, you know, with my brother and sister, and she moved back up to Dallas, and that's kind of when I, that's where I, you know, I moved up to Dallas, learned about the dollar and the gun, <laughs> you know, the fast living and stuff. How old were you when you moved to Dallas? I guess I was eight or nine. Were you interested in school? Were you a good student? Were you, uh, I mean, what would kids, you know, back then say about how you, how you were? Huh. Well, I don't. I wasn't a bad kid. I, I I probably wasn't a great student, but I wasn't a bad kid. I was. Uh, I don't know. I was really interested. I don't know. I wasn't that interested in school. I guess um, I was interested in the arts, but I wasn't interested in the maybe the rest of the more like uh, traditional academics. You know, and I was real. I was dyslexic, and you know, they saw me as slow and, and stuff. So, you know, I, I, I liked school in some ways. I, I liked the arts. I liked music class. I liked those things, but. You know, school was kind of, it was tough for me, and I was really ready to, I couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> but I didn't play music back then, you know. My mama tried to get me on the piano when I was two, and I was too young. I didn't, I, I couldn't really focus. I didn't have no interest, and it wasn't until I was 17 that she got me a guitar out of a pawn shop, uh old Honer guitar, and that was really when I started playing. It was the right time, you know, maybe the guitar was was a compact instrument I could carry around with me and I wasn't any good at it, but I put all my time into it and I had been already going back and forth between New Orleans and Dallas because I was just living with my mother and she was, as long as I've known her, she's been working, you know, 68 to 80 hours a week her whole life. It's working really hard, but changed our situation. I'd say she succeeded at that. Actually, she just graduated from Oregon State University and she'd be the first person in couple generations to get a bachelor's degree she got a degree in anthropology actually which i'm really proud of her about proud of her for and uh, she worked really hard my whole life to kind of change our situation and uh but she would send me to new orleans i spent my summers in new orleans for years as a kid with my uncle there and that's kind of how i first i would walk he lived and worked in the french quarter right there on a, a restaurant called la louisiane on uh 
Iberville in between bourbon and royal. And I spent a lot of my days running around the quarter, and that was my first exposure to the brass bands and, and the street culture, which, you know, a few years later, I'd end up being one of those street artists. And, you know, I started train hopping and hitchhiking, and uh, and I ended up in New Orleans and, and, and eventually started playing on the street. And really, from there, I started really traveling around America because that's a real big part of the street music culture, especially in New Orleans, is, is traveling. And I did that for a decade. Uh, was, was did your mom have records? Did she have the radio on all the time? She sang a lot when we were when I was younger. She sang a lot. She had she sang a lot of blues. She sang a lot of, of old jazz stuff. She's really into Billie Holiday and a lot of old blues records and stuff. And uh, it was funny when I she started seeing me as like more of a professional artist. She like started being maybe she's like more she's more shy about it now, you know. But when I was a kid, she would sing. We would sing together all the time. You know, and that's that's where I really got it from. You know, I wish I could say I was like listening to this old time music and learn how to play it real young, but that's not really my story. You know, my 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 story is more of you know of kind of being a latchkey kid turned into a drifter. It's just that kind of story, you know. Some guys, some gals, you know. It's like I don't know when I got into my early twenties and I started hearing those uh, that old time Carter family stuff or or, or early rural blues recordings, you know, like, and maybe I've heard them when I was younger, but there was something about the place I was in my life. And when I started hearing them as a street player and that's just old, the old time music became, you know, really the only music that I was interested in, you know, and I don't know, I guess there was an honest, I can hear an honesty in that music that maybe is largely lacking, you know, today. But you still you still have a great ear for pop music, uh, obviously, because like Little Girl's Name is like just a you know almost sounds like a, a top forty song from the sixties or something, you know. And one of the other things oh, I yeah, noticed that's cool. That's cool. You think that I like that. Yeah. Uh, mm. Another thing I notice about your records is that uh, the songs are all short. You know, I mean, not all of them, but you know, you don't take a there's no extra baloney on the songs. You know what I mean? It's a, it's all cut. Well. And you write about yeah, you write about that. I mean, the, it, it, it's it's popping in the way that, like, I mean, I put it like this. You know, when I got into, I'm a really big fan of Fast Domino and Chuck Berry and Ernest Tubb and Lightning Hopkins and Loretta Lynn and you know, you can't find a three minute and ten second song on <laughs> any of those folks' records. <laughs> That's absolutely you know, true. And, yeah. uh, you know, it really is. You know, and. uh I really like that. You know, I, I, I've myself always been drawn to short songs that I can listen to a million times. Maybe that's where the popular sound comes from. But it's interesting that you brought up Little Girl's Name because I'll tell you, you know, the, the way I wrote that song, I was actually out in Northern California out on a friend of mine's farm. And uh, it just came to me. I was standing in, in the man's living room and we were burning firewood in the fireplace and having a good morning in there. And I just... I, I write a lot. A lot of my stuff comes to me kind of acapella, and I and I, I heard it as just a purely acapella song. And then, you know, I was clapping my hands and singing those lines. You know, and a lot of my stuff comes that way. Hmm. Well, it's funny you say about the singing songs, making songs up acapella, because some of the songs they're so melodic. You know that that makes that makes perfect sense. Uh, let me let's go back to. You got a single mom who's working all the time. You're in school. You're not digging it so much, and you're traveling back and forth to New Orleans. And so, if you're not in school, what are you doing all day? What's what's keeping you busy? Oh well, I mean, I completed all those levels. You know, I completed high school, um, but I, uh, I mean, when I was in New Orleans, I was in the restaurant with my uncle, or I was in the uh, bingo halls that he worked at or in the casinos that he played at. And, uh, you know, I did that all, I did that all the time. I used to just hang out in the, in the restaurant and it was, this... oh, so he was playing music. No, he was, a, he wasn't, he wasn't, he was just managing working the restaurants and, uh, and, uh, like working the bingo halls. You know, I used to, I used to play his cards for him in the bingo halls and stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, and he was gambling in the casinos and stuff, you know, I, when you said playing, I, I thought you meant playing music, not playing bingo. I see. <laughs> so, yeah, playing playing the game. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, uh, New Orleans is a, is a 
is a weird place. I mean, I've been there. I love it there. But every time I go there, I see something funky going on. And it's like a place where, like, regular laws almost don't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Especially it was like that back in the 90s. You know, when I was a kid, there was especially like that. You couldn't even get a receipt for nothing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) know? Yeah. (laughs) But it's still like that. You know, I mean, I played there on the street a lot from, like, 2009 to... 2012 or so it was I was playing there the most it was after Katrina and even a few you know even years after you know there was there were a lot of squatters there was a you know a lot of a lot of poverty I mean there's always been deep poverty in New Orleans but it was extended poverty because of so much of the you know the storm damage in the in the in the flooded neighborhoods that just remained empty or just kind of unlivable you know and people living you know I knew a I knew so many train kids and people that were, you know, squatting in the different wards. And, you know, at that time, Occupy Wall Street was big. And so there was a ton of homeless sleeping in the parks because, you know, the movement was strong enough that they were tolerating it for a minute. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, lot of drug use among the street culture, you know, and I saw, I saw a lot of that, you know, and, you know, you'd get offered heroin easier than you would, you know, some, some ganja, you know, and that was a strange thing, you know, to me, but, you know, lots of, lots of street artists were hooked on that kind of stuff, you know, and I played with lots of guys that were, you know, you didn't really know who was and who wasn't and stuff, you know, and there's that looseness, you know, you can drink liquor in the street as long as it's in a plastic bottle. It's still like that, you know, um, I guess they're trying to clean it up now, but I mean, that has always, but yeah, that's absolutely always been a part of the, of that culture. You know, when I was a kid, I spent, a lot of time running around the corner and I see a lot of street people talking to themselves and I always thought, well, they're just, they're talking to God. You know, I, I, I didn't realize how many, I didn't realize the type of addiction that I was seeing, you know, um, that's just, that's just kind of always been part of it, you know? Yeah, it is. Uh, th- I think that's obvious. I mean, I, I don't know if you have any exposure to that and you're seeing those people. Sometimes it's obvious that they're kind of wired or, you know, there's something, something going on mm-hmm. um, it, it, this is not like the you know uh the depression i didn't realize that you could still just jump on a train and go somewhere uh, t- tell me about that well for me the you know the the way i got into it was hanging out in new orleans and then street players that i was hanging around with you know we won't be wanting to travel and stuff and hitchhiking is the easiest way to get around and that's the way i prefer to prefer to travel but you know we would do the trains too and uh i had some people i was Playing with it, you know, got me into that, you know, and the and the train, the train yards are, you know, people think that they're, you know, it's this thing that doesn't happen anymore because it seems like an old time, but really, I, I couldn't say it now, you know, it's been a few years since I, you know, was doing that, but at the time, man, there were a lot of people riding on the trains, and, uh, you know, you'd see teenagers from all over America from broken backgrounds, you know, and, you know, you can, I don't know, you know, chalk it up to the decaying middle class or something because you know i would can't tell you how many times i saw really young teenagers riding trains and stuff you know my my own nephew became a train hopper you know and i read i rode him from you know new york to california and you know across the south and uh you know i i like i like doing it you know i mean there you know there's a lot of people that you need you got to watch out for and there's people in the train yard that run you off and you know you can get you know, you can get yourself hurt, but it's also, you can also really see some beautiful things. You know, those trains go on a lot of places you'd never see on a, you know, on the highway. And, you know, a lot of them, you can just sit on the end of the, end of the car there. There's a nice little platform you could sit on and stuff. And lots of those freight cars are open. You know, the doors are open and those trains sit in yards for long periods of time and change tracks and, you know, all kind of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people riding trains, uh, you know, you know, maybe more now than there was when I was doing it. I couldn't really say, but like I said, my nephew is a good 10 years younger than me. And, you know, he was, he was riding them right up till, I don't know, probably about a year ago. So, 
That's amazing. You know? I never would have guessed yeah. that was, that was still a real thing. I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Let me remind everybody that Charlie Crockett is our guest. New album is called Lonesome as a Shadow. And uh, tonight he's playing at the Austin City Limits Music Festival, and then he's going to be in Boston and Philadelphia, and then next Saturday the 20th uh, at Irving Plaza in New York City. Uh, so keep your eye on uh, charliecrockett.com for information and all that stuff. So tell me, if you're busking all day in New Orleans, how much money can you make? Seems like like, you make, like I see those people seem to make good money. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of those people that choose to do it for a living full time, you know, some people, you know, can buy houses with it. Um, but uh, you know, we were we were wilder and rough around the edges than that. So you know, but I had some pretty cool mixed uh, bag street bands and stuff, and you know, we could make you know seven or eight hundred dollars. Um, you know, out there as a group, you know, sometimes a little bit more and sometimes a little bit less or quite a bit less. Um, you know, it's got to be high season. There ain't no money to be made out there in the summertime because there's no tourists and it's too hot. Uh, but in the springtime, you know, come Mardi Gras, really from like fall, really the fall season, you know, once it cools down, like once you get into September, September, October, it, it, all the way through jazz fest it's pretty good you know which is about half the half the year you know and they could let they close down the they they close down the streets on royal at 11 a.m from like 11 to 4 or so they would be closed down and it's just street pedestrians which is ideal you know so uh we used to play the we would play we would play on royal street you know during that period say like that whole kind of 11 to 4 period you know you have to get out there and kind of fight for your spot you know um get out there early somebody have to wait real early on the spot and then kind of defend it and get in there and hold it and then uh you know we would do that and then i'd go over to you know cafe dumont in the afternoon kind of work we had a thing worked out you know and play after you know the saxophone players got it charles beat holding it down and we play after him get our little spot in there for the people at the cat, you know, people eat beignets. Um, you know, if I couldn't get in then, you know, I might do a solo thing on Decatur just in one of the little cubby holes, one of the businesses that was closed and you can make your little solo money there. And then, uh, you could go back to Royal street in the evening, you know, and do it, you know, and there'd be like a different type of crowd there in front of houses or whatever. Uh, and you know, doing that deal and uh, always, sell, always make more money by selling CDs, even if the CDs you're selling aren't any good. <laughs> So you were selling, you were making CDs even back then? Oh, man. Yeah, I've been making mixed-play recordings for a long time, you know. I used to even wrap them up. And back in New Orleans, we would buy we'd buy these brown 50 packs of brown paper lunch bags from the Walgreens, you know, and uh, you just fold those up, put a piece of tape on it, and write the label on there. And we, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's what we did, you know. And, you know, you could sell those for, you know, we used to do one for, no, what do we do? Yeah, one for fifteen or two for twenty, and that was like it was the deal on that street, you know. And and everybody kind of kept it. All the bands kind of kept it at that same price, you know. And uh, you, you know, you more, you know, it's just easy to get them to spend twenty dollars that way, and people want to remember their experience and stuff, you know. And um, I learned traditional, you know, some simple traditional jazz tunes that way, uh, and so that's what I mean, you know. From I was really hearing traditional jazz and like the earliest versions of like of old folk music and like really old drinking songs. Like I really got into Hank Williams because of jug bands playing his music. And you know, you couldn't, and I didn't really know, like my buckets got a hole in it. I didn't really know who wrote it. You couldn't the way they was doing it. It sounded like it was a hundred year old song. You know, it didn't really sound like that. Maybe more show tunes type of hillbilly country thing that Hank was doing, you know, and he wasn't somebody that I, besides his name was really aware of growing up. I really got to like him as a street player and uh, a whole number of guys like that. You know, the same thing with like, uh, I remember this girl taught me a, a uh, song, uh, what was that song called? Cold, Cold Water. And uh, the way she used to sing it, I thought it was a 150-year-old song and I learned it from her and she never did say where she learned it or whatever. I just assumed it was a spiritual, you know, lost deep in the centuries of the American canon or whatever. And, uh, Later on, I realized it was a uh, dang Tom Waits song, you know, and I always, 
you know, I always thought I didn't like Tom Waits, you know, I didn't <laughs> like his voice, you know, but the song was amazing. And I, and I, that actually happened with him twice. Another one of his was, uh, come on up to the house. That was another one. I learned uh, a traditional, I thought it was a traditional, the dang Tom Waits song. And once he got me twice, I said, man, I, there's something to this guy. He must be a pretty good songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if the young kids are hollering him in the streets and I think it's, you know, from the 1860s, you know, he must be doing something right. So it changed my mind about him a little bit, but also I, it really, from there on out, like, everything I do, I come from a traditional place because even if little girl's name has a fifties or sixties pop sound to it or something, all of the, that's something that I can, I, I, you know, that I can, I can choose to keep, I can choose to record that song without all that instrumentation, you know, and, and do it in a way that would make it much more, um, older sounding, you know, which is what I, which is what I really like, you know, um, no, absolutely. All the songs are good songs at the core, all songs that you can play on the street just by yourself and uh, and hook a crowd. You know, they're great. They're, I mean, the songs are fantastic. Uh, uh, and that's kind of the basis for everything. I mean, a lot of your press talks about your background and your story, which is super interesting. But uh, don't forget the music, which is, you know, kind of at the end of the day, the most important thing. Uh, somehow you made it to New York City. You're playing in subway cars. Uh, somehow, according to your bio, lived in the streets of Paris and uh, then wandering through Spain, Morocco, North Africa. I mean, not everybody does that, right? I mean, it's not it's not super weird, but I mean, were you? Is it just like just what you felt like doing? Were you running away? Were you unfulfilled? Were you searching for something, well, or were you just wanted to go look around? Well, I got in a lot of trouble um, as a young adult. You know, I got in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, big type of trouble, you know, life-changing trouble, you know, family, family trouble, family going to jail type trouble, you know. Uh, um, so this is while you were doing the busking or, or at what point? In and out, you know, I'm, I, family, I had some situations, you know, my brother drew me into some stuff he was doing, you know, and using my name for some stuff, you know, and we're half brothers and you know, with different last names and he was doing some illegal stuff and bringing me into it. And, you know, and I just, yeah. So maybe I was, maybe I was running away from those things. You know, I'd been, you know, when you get in trouble and, you know, you get taken advantage of by family and stuff, you know, it, it could kind of, it's nothing I blame him for, you know, he, he grew up in poverty and was trying to change the situation and, um, you know, for uneducated people, you know, a lot of times it's, there's not a lot of options, you know, and, and that tends to be why people break the law. And, uh, you know, I got into all this type, that type of stuff with him and, uh, you know, it was in and out of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, he came into my life right in the middle when I was already playing music and kind of pulled me another direction and, uh, just, you know, bringing me into this world of, you know, kind of very kind of mafioso, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Like, uh, illegal stuff on the bottom of the stock market type stuff he got into by climbing his way up from being a door-to-door salesman to becoming a, you know, a stockbroker and getting into a bunch of shady stuff that way. And, uh, really, uh, it really changed my life. It really kind of gave me a scarlet letter. I got in a lot of trouble, you know, I got, I dealt with the government and all kind of stuff. And, uh, I guess it put me in a, in some ways I'm real grateful to him because it changed my life so much that I didn't see myself ever doing anything conventional. And so living on the street for me and traveling hard was just the only way I was going to do it. I didn't have any interest in trying to get a real job, um, or doing it straight. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, and I never had a problem working hard, man. It's just who I'm working for, you know? Let me unpack that just for a sec. Some people would go through that experience and do the opposite, right? Scared straight, right? I'm never going to, you know, I don't want to get in that situation again. Why did you choose the opposite of that? I mean, to be honest with you, I, you know, I just became really disillusioned with the, you know, with the legal system, with the, you know, with the, the conventional, you know, channels that are available to you based on your status and, you know, your class or wherever you're from, you know, and I just, uh, you know, I wasn't like, I got to break the law and all that type of stuff. But the funny thing is, you know, like the whole time I was living in New York, playing on the street and playing in the train cars, you know, I played in the subway cars themselves. And, 
you know, all that stuff's completely illegal. You know, it's all illegal. You know, it's a, when you play in the train car, they can give you a ticket for blocking the door. They give you a ticket for panhandling. They can give you a, a, a ticket for um, a, a, a noise level, like a, a going over for playing Amplified. Did you collect a lot of tickets? You know, I didn't. And uh, the reason I didn't is because the police uh, liked our band. We were popular. Uh, we didn't. We weren't. We didn't really piss people off. They really liked us. We. Uh, it was a unique combination of the type of sound that you hear me doing, and uh, I was working with some different hip hop artists, really, really talented young poets. A particular guy named J. Don Woodard, just a really talented guy, and he would be freestyling, and uh, we connected and started playing in the train cars, and he would be rapping you know about the you know we'd be on the train you know we'd play it from like essex back over into brooklyn over the bridge and back and you would just run in between the cars on there you could get in between several cars that was going over the east river and uh we could make a lot of money that way and that's another thing that's another ticket obviously you know you're not supposed to go through the car you know through the doors when it's moving but i mean i did get a couple tickets but not nearly as many as you'd think we would for the how aware of us they were you know and but uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is through all the stuff that I've been through, just kind of growing up the way that I did and then getting into the family trouble that I had, it kind of had a, an, a, a funny effect on me, which gave me this kind of fearlessness and this kind of sense that if I could get through all the, you know, the government investigations and, and just all the trouble I'd been in, I could, you know, I could survive as an artist and I could make it pay and I'd and I was young enough to, you know, sleep in the park and squat in warehouses and crash on people's floors. And I just do that as long as it took to be recognized as an artist, you know, um, that's really all, that's really all it was about, you know, and I just, all of the combination of things together made it such that I just didn't give up on it, you know? And I used to stand outside a million, I played every open mic you could play in New York, man. I played every blues jam you could play. I played every street corner you could. And I, and one thing I'll say is uh, you'd be hard, fest, hard pressed to find anybody that ever tried harder at that than me, like ever, you know? And, uh, I played those train cars really hard, man. We played those train cars eight to 10 hours a day for a couple of years, you know? And I played the platforms a couple of years before that. I just kept doing it, you know? And, and it wasn't one of those things where I was like, this is going to make me famous. I was like, I was like, man, I'm, you know, if I'm just playing in the park, I'm not making any money at all. But if I'm playing in the subway, you know, they were paying me to practice on a platform, you know, and I got a lot better that way. You know, I really, you know what I mean? You get really good sitting there at the Metropolitan Avenue at the G train, you know, playing for three hours straight, you know, not stopping, you know, and then when you move off from that spot, just go to another one, you know, go eat and then go to another one. And I mean, I just spent all my twenties doing that, you know, and uh, I ended up in, the way I ended up in Europe is I met through those open mics that I was, so that's what I was doing. I was playing the street all day and then going to open mics and open jams every single night. I really did it that way, you know, and there's a lot of people in New York that are still there that could testify to that story, you know, and a guy that I met from Denmark at a place called Lucky Jack's down there on Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. He used to have a real, a, a mic, open mic in the basement run by this boy named Sasha Chavez that open mic ran for like eight years. It was called it Mike club. It was a really amazing place where a lot of artists got a chance to perform in front of people that otherwise wouldn't have had one. And, uh, I got to be one, a regular there and, uh, built my confidence and met a lot of other performers that way. And one of them that I met was a Danish jazz singer, this boy by the name of Benjamin Agerbach, great jazz singer from Denmark, pretty well known in that little country. And eventually he brought me over there to Denmark cause he liked me so much. And, uh, I play, he gave me, he let me use his apartment. He was living with his girlfriend. Like he had one, the government was paying for or something like that because he was, well, you know, he had the, I forget exactly how it worked, but he had an extra apartment and I played, I played around Copenhagen for about eight weeks and, uh, until I wore out my welcome and I took my last couple hundred, uh, dollars, I guess it was kroner, kroner, whatever their money is over there. I took the last bit I had and I bought a one way bus ticket to Paris and, uh, didn't think about how, what I was going to do when I got there, you know? And, you know, I remember he said, man, don't go down there. They don't speak English, you know, stick to Germany or England or wherever. It'd be way easier on, but I didn't want to go there. I wanted to go to, I want to go to France because, you know, growing up in Texas, Louisiana with my family background and stuff, I, I wanted to see, I wanted to see it. You know, my mama's favorite 
town has always been Paris. I really wanted to go there. And if I'd have realized how hard it was going to be, I probably never would have gone. But when I, and I got there and I was scared to death, but, uh, because the language barrier was extremely difficult, but, uh, I thought I was a street player when I got there. And then after living on the streets there for about nine months, then I, then I really was, then I really was a street player, you know, by that time. Cause I just had to slug it out and I learned a lot of stuff. You know, I learned to sell CDs hard. I learned how to move to the best spots. I learned that your traditional American music was the stuff that stopped them. You know, I, I made sure and stayed dressed up and looked clean uh, and old time stuff, you know, and I would go back to, I took that back to New Orleans and applied all that stuff and started dressing up and I never stopped doing it that way, you know, and, uh, you know, the reason I ended up in Africa was because I'd been in Europe for about a year, you know, which is about four times longer than you're supposed to be there at any one time. And I didn't want to go back to the United States. At the time, I imagined I'd never go back. I thought I thought I was going to go to Africa and stay there for a couple of years. Um, and I was trying to go to way down there to West Africa. I had somebody that I'd met, a poet named Fasine, whose great-grandfather was like a revolutionary in, in, uh, in Guinea. And he was going to take me down there and he's in, and, and hang out there. And, uh, we were getting, I was riding with a guy from Amnesty International from Paris down there. And in Morocco, I got stuck in Morocco and they wouldn't stamp my transit visa as an American citizen to go through the only country you can drive. You can go by land to the rest of Africa. If you're coming in through Europe, the only way you can get down to the rest of Africa is you got to drive down through Morocco and into Mauritania. You can't go through Algeria because the border is permanently closed because Algeria claims Morocco belongs to them. So obviously they don't get along. And, uh, and uh, I couldn't get the least. I couldn't get, they wouldn't stamp. You got to go to the Mauritanian embassy. And this is like one of the poorest countries on earth. And I waited around for two weeks. They didn't stamp my visa and I didn't want to, I didn't want to try to go back to Europe. And uh, so I ended up living in Morocco <laughs> and, you know, for about, six months and when I went uh, when I got on that war I was living up in the mountains with these Berber these Berber people that I had met and it was an amazing experience but after about six months I felt really isolated and I took my chances going back into France you know into Europe and I just got lucky and got back in and you know then eventually I went back to the States I got you know and then it and then it drew in me I just got to this point where I I have, as an American, I did feel really isolated after being gone for so long from my culture that I really wanted to come back and I, I, I wanted to be known as a performer, you know, and have an audience. And then, you know, and I went back and signed my first, I got discovered on the train cars in New York, actually. Um, and it was my first deal I ever got offered with that group called the Train Robbers with uh, Jada on the rapper and some other boys from New Orleans that I brought up. And, uh, that deal didn't work out, but that once that deal didn't work out, I was, I decided I was tired of, you know, living on the street and I moved out of New York, out, back out to California on some farms I'd been at when I was younger, started recording myself. And after I was free and clear from any kind of contractual obligations, I started pushing that 2015 record, Stolen Jewel. And, uh, you know, got on the, got on the bar circuit in Texas and the bar circuit in Texas led me to getting a Nashville agent, and that Nashville agent led me to you. <laughs> so question, you, 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 after all this time playing on the streets and, like we talked about, kind of folding in all these influences, you know, from the, the Gulf Coast thing, the Texas thing, the New Orleans thing, the just kind of, so there's definitely some hip-hop, even in your new record, I hear it. And, uh, yeah. And so when you get into a recording studio, finally, was it easy to make whatever you had going, hearing in your head? Was it easy to get that to come out in the studio? Oh, man, so easy. So easy. I just, I have so many songs. I have, if you, if you can believe everything I've been telling you, you know, that's a lot of time that's passed by and a lot of experience. And you better believe I've written a lot of songs, man. Many, 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 many songs. And to get in to get in a studio and you know to be able to just record them you know is like that was just the that was just the dream you know i mean you know there are so i have so many bootleg recordings that i just that recorded in random makeshift studios or just on the microphone built off someone's laptop and phone recordings that i put on cds and stuff i mean it just it just took me so long to get to a real studio with like a real team and get a band in there and like you know 
record it and you know have a plan to get it distributed and get it and get it heard you know and it is funny you say that because i do feel like mostly all people talk about is is my story you know and and not the music a lot you know and I think my music's really good. I think it, I think it stands out. <laughs> oh <you know>? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't be talking otherwise. Absolutely. Uh, the third, but it's funny you say you've written so many songs because the new album is the first one that's all original material. Maybe that's just your busking uh, history. You just you know you're like a walking jukebox. But the second, the third record, uh, GL's Honky Tonk Jubilee, it's all cover songs. And interesting because those are songs that are easy to mess up, or you know, it's hard to do a Hank Williams song because it's been done a million times but uh, I love that record because like we talked about earlier you kind of put your own spin on a lot of those songs like changing them into minor keys and changing the feel or you know just they're they're like a whole different song almost well the fun yeah and I appreciate you saying that I mean so here's the here's the funny thing about about that how when I'm looking back at it now it looked totally different than what the plan was at the time so all my records if you look at a stolen jewel and in the night, those were my first two albums. I was doing them completely by myself. They're about 50-50 originals and covers. And that was something that I'd consciously been trying to do, which was, you know, I wanted to show people that I could write, and I wanted to show people that I could take a song that's been around for 50 years, 60 years, and I could reinvent it. And that's just something I wanted to do. That was a choice that I made. Not a lack, Not having a lack of originals or anything like that. I just like to really mix it up, you know, and that's, you know, I'm producing those, those records myself. So there's, that's just me. I know Lil GL, all that was going on was I had put out in the night and I got my manager, uh, J.R. Denson, who I love working with. We got a great relationship and we've just been really, you know, climbing a lot of mountains together and I recorded in the night and he loved it. And, uh, and we were just trying to get that record out, just knocking on people's doors, just trying to get it out in front of people and give it some time to get heard because he believed, and I believe too, that those songs on there could really take off if we got some more attention. And you know how hard it is to, to do that. And uh, so while that record was going out, I'd like a, I, I just wanted to stay busy, and I had had this idea of recording, doing a classic country album of all Hunky Tonk you know, for a long time. And so I just recorded that record at the same place I've been cutting all my records. I just did it on my own for fun uh, to stay busy. You know, that's why I cut so many of them, you know, and I just cut them real quick. We just did it in two days. And uh, what ends up happening is while I cut that record and as we're getting it ready to, getting it all ready to get a master and all this kind of stuff, that's when 30 Tigers came into the picture. And, they came into the picture and looked at it and said, man, we really love this record. You know, we, we want to pick up your, we'd like to distribute your whole catalog and, you know, we'd love to send this out. You know, we'd love to send this out, you know, and see, you know, what DJs think about it. You know, can we do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, there was no marketing money or thing put into it or nothing. It was just a, a thing I did for fun and they thought it was really cool and thought it was something they could push around without having to sell it real hard. And lo and behold, I got, it kind of got a little, it kind of took, had a little international thing, you know, and I thought all my first international press came from, you know, people who love classic hockey talk from different corners of the world, you know, writing about the record, you know, I just could have never seen, I just never would have thought that would happen, you know? And so what I'm saying is, is this covers record, which was my third out the studio album ended up being so much better known than the two before it that I go out on the road and that's what people uh, first thing a lot of people have heard me do you know and I, I think that is why we decided to go ahead and just do all originals on this on the latest one I did with uh, Matt Rosbang and Sam Phillips just so people didn't think that I just was a cover you know a guy that was just really good at reinterpreting old songs you know because I can do that really good, you know, but, uh, and that's the only reason that there's all, all originals. Otherwise I probably would have had about a half, half covers on there, you know? Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. That's funny. There's, that's an absolutely perfect reason for that. Yeah. I think my favorite is brothers of the bottle. I mean, I think that's the best version of that song I ever heard, you know? Oh, well, thank you. I, some people probably might not like that. I changed some of those words, but I do. <laughs> I still gave all the, I still gave all the credit to them. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that, man. 
so the new record, how how long did it take to make? Because it sounds so good. Was there a lot of experimenting, or did you guys just is that what you how you play the songs live? That's how I played them live. I mean, we had a you know Matt Rothstein's a great uh, producer and engineer, and we, we we did the record together. Um, but you know, when I met him, I ran in. I was passing through town, and I went over there and, and met him at, at Sam Phillips. And uh, he just took me in the studio A and handed me his old Gibson guitar and was just like, play me what you got. And I played him about 25 songs. And he was like, well, I'd record all 25 of those. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's whatever go. you want to do, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, we sent, I think we narrowed it down to like probably 16 or 17 songs and then went in there and we cut, I can't remember, man. I think we cut 13 or 12 or 14 and, in uh, in four in four days, and uh, and I stayed around. Them. The boys were, the boys left after the four studio days, and then I stayed around a, a week with with brother Matt to finish it. And uh, you know he, he he missed it there at the studio, and I got to hang out in Memphis for a few days with him, and and that was it, man. I mean, it was it was really easy, and it, it was real fast, you know. And it was all live, you know. We had a few overdubs, but I mean, I had the whole band. My boys, I got a really good band, and that's the thing, man. I mean, I'm playing 200 shows a year. And all the guys in my band are, are really hard-playing guys. I mean, guys that were all grinding in blues bands and honky-tonk bands and touring in, in their own right and, or at least really duking it out hard in Austin or Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, for the last several years. And uh, when you got that kind of team and short, simple songs like I do, you know, it's, it's uh, going to the studio is the easiest part, man. It's just all this politics of business, you know. But the recording is the easiest part, man, for me. So now that you're like a big shot, right? Has your life changed? I mean, do you not, you know, do you still want to go sleep on trains or, you know, or do you have a house? Do you have a microwave oven? You know what I mean? Do you have stuff? Yeah, I mean, me and my girl got a little 750 square foot house down here in, in Austin. And I don't know, I wouldn't want anything bigger than that. You know, I do want, we do want to be back out on a farm sometime. I've spent a lot of my downtime over in my life on farms and stuff. Um, I don't feel like a big shot, honestly, man. I feel like a underdog, you know. I feel like I'm always having to work five times harder to get people to, you know, recognize my music. Why is that? Well, I don't, I don't know, man. I guess it's the, it might just be my nature. It might be, a, I think it's the street thing. I think it's, uh, I think it's all that hard living, you know. And it's just one of those, it's just one of those things. I guess it's part of what drives me because there's some, there is an aspect of music in america today you know it's like and to call me a country artist which they do are calling me a lot because that little gl record is very confusing because if you look at mainstream country music it doesn't have anything to do with the music i'm talking about i mean absolutely nothing um and i feel like a lot of the popular music genres are just so watered down that it doesn't mean anything so it's really really hard for roots artists i think to gain a larger following um outside of that model, you know, and, 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 and maybe, and maybe I just maybe represent the feeling of a lot of marginalized artists coming from a roots background, whether, you know, cause whether you're coming from calling you, you know, see yourself as a blues or a country or folk artist or whatever, you know, it's, it's really challenging out, out there, you know, because, you know, streaming, the streaming world, you know, and the, and the whole playlist thing, and, you know, and all that type of stuff, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's tough and it's skewed, you know, so I guess I, I guess I always will have a, a big old chip on my, my shoulder, but, uh, I do, I do miss the street. Um, I do miss the trains, man. I, um, I do really miss that. I, I think about it all the time. I mean, and, and that's honestly, you know, a place that I go to in my mind a lot when I'm on stage and when I'm thinking about this, you know, and now you're clearly born with with some some bug in you for sure yeah it's in, really interesting uh, i want to play this song the title cut lonesome as a shadow what is this song about exactly lonesome as a shadow man i wrote that one you know i guess i you know i don't know i didn't that one i didn't really think too much about what i was saying while i was coming up with it um but it really is all in there it's kind of my story of being a being kind of a drifter, ho drifting hobo, you know, and I'm, you know, I got my, I'm as lonesome as the shadow I carry, which is just me, you know, it's like, I've had some people hit me up and say, 
well, how can you be lonesome as a shadow? Because your shadow is always with you. And I'm like, well, that's the whole point. <laughs> Let's hear this track. Uh, best of luck with your show next Saturday at Irving Plaza and the tour and whatever is coming. Uh, I'm certainly interested in hearing it. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Michael. I come from deep country Underneath that anthem Rolling down a long highway That's where this begun Instead of wondering where you are I just stand behind this guitar I'm in no some As a shadow I'm in no some as a leaf Instead of falling down off the tree Just as tired as a train They carry my baby away again Well, I come from the Gulf Where even Houston is a way of no I'm as lonesome as a shadow Paper, paper crow fly I went down to Texas with the Louisiana Always on my mind I was out in Arkansas But I can't tell you just what I thought I'm alone some ever I'm as long, 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 long